Wow. We do not sing those words in vain. We've been through the fire, we've been through darkest night, and we know that the goodness of God has carried us, has accompanied us, has never failed us all along the way. The disciples had a request of Jesus one day, and I'm glad that they asked Him. They said, Lord, teach us to pray in Luke chapter 11. And Jesus instructed them, and He gave them what we refer to as the Lord's Prayer. Its most uh, common form is in Matthew chapter 6. And in answer to that question, the disciples received a prayer that has impacted the world over. It really is remarkable. In just about any place, if there is some sort of solemn occasion, somebody can start out saying, even in the King James, right, our Father who art in heaven, and people join in. People who haven't darkened the doors of a church in years, people who only go a couple of times a year, faithful attenders in a variety of denominations across the Christian world received this instruction and know how to pray. But really, it would be most properly called the disciples' prayer because that is the prayer that Jesus gave the disciples to pray. And when we refer to the Lord's Prayer, probably John chapter 17 is the very best place to go. Jesus prayed 21 times through the Gospels, but this is definitely the longest of Jesus' prayers in which we really see the heart of the Savior. As you know, we have finished with the Upper Room Discourse. We've gone through John chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16 together where Jesus is giving uh, the disciples His last instructions and teaching before He is taken from them. And now He is approaching the Garden of Gethsemane. He's approaching that moment when He will be betrayed and when the events of the cross uh, will precipitate very quickly. And He lifts up a prayer to heaven which we can very properly call the Lord's Prayer. This whole chapter, John 17, is taken up with the prayer of Jesus. The first five verses, Jesus is praying about Himself in relation to the Father, and that's what we'll talk about this morning. And then verses 6 through 19, Jesus prays for the disciples. And then verses 20 through 26, He actually prays for us. He prays for the whole church. He says, I'm praying not only for the disciples, but for everyone who will become a believer through the ministry of the disciples. Jesus actually prays for you and for me in John 17. So for the next five weeks, we'll be going through this together, starting today with verses 1 through 5. And we can refer to this also as a prayer of consecration. The basic content of this prayer is Jesus committing Himself to the Father's will, and then committing the disciples to the Father's will, and then committing the whole church to the Father's will. So let's read those first five verses together now. After Jesus said this, that whole upper room discourse, He looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. 
glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. It's pretty clear what the emphasis of the beginning of this prayer is. As Jesus prays about himself in relation to the Father, five times he prays about glory. In some ways, the Gospel of John could be called the Gospel of Glory. It begins with John talking about Jesus' glory. It ends with a reference to glory that we will be talking about. And all throughout, we read about the glory of God. Forty-two different times, John mentions the concept of God's glory throughout this gospel. And so it's important for us to have an understanding of what it is that we are talking about. And I tell you, all week, literally, I have... I have shrunk before the, the magnitude of the task before us. It is not in vain that we sing a hymn in which we ascribe to God the character of being ineffably divine. Ineffably means beyond description. And the glory of God is beyond what we can imagine and certainly beyond what we can describe. But we will attempt mainly using the words of Scripture because that's the most powerful thing available to us to understand this concept of God's glory before then we look at how God's glory is expressed in the Gospel of John. There are two aspects or two perspectives on God's glory that we need to understand. And the one is simply the, the power of His presence or the awesomeness of His presence. And most often that is expressed as light. When John says that God is light and in His presence there can be no darkness at all and every bit of darkness is driven from His presence, that is talking about the power of the glory of God as seen in His presence, in the light of His presence. The psalmist expresses it this way, Lord my God, You are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. The Lord wraps Himself with light as with a garment. That is the glory of God, the, the awesome power of His presence. And then the glory of God is seen in the perfections of His character, in His righteousness and justice, His holiness, His wrath, His love, His power, His wisdom and knowledge, His presence throughout the universe, the fact that He sustains everything that exists. These are the perfections of the character of God. And when we have a glimpse of His perfections, we have a glimpse of His glory. These two dynamics are seen at play in a very interesting passage. All passages are very interesting, uh, but this one is really helpful in this regard, and it's Exodus chapter 33 and 34. 
Moses is about to set out from Mount Sinai with the people of Israel. He understands the enormity of the task that is ahead of him, and he says, Lord, will you go with me? And the Lord says, I will go with you. And then Moses is bold enough to say, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all of my goodness, the perfections of his character, I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I have mercy on whom I have mercy, and have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, the Lord said, you cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. Do you see those two dynamics at play? The awesome power of the presence of God. Moses can't look at that aspect of God's glory and survive, but Moses can see the magnification of the perfections of God's character. The Lord said, there's a place near me where you may stand on a rock, and when my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by, so that Moses will not be struck dead by the vision of the presence of God. I lost track. (laughs) Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Then in Exodus 34, the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. So that first aspect, the, the, the power of the presence of God is hidden from Moses. But the perfections of God's character are proclaimed in these beautiful terms about the compassion, the mercy, the justice, and the holiness of God. And Moses has a vision of the holiness of the Lord. This is glory. And this is what John is talking about. And this is what Jesus prays about in this passage. And for the next few minutes, we're going to look at what you might call the dynamic of the glory of God in this prayer and in the Gospel of John. Because in John 17, 1, we hear the basic prayer of Jesus, and then it's kind of filled out for us in the following four verses, in which Jesus prays, asking the Father to glorify Him that He then may bring glory to the Father. So glory is moving around in this passage. The first movement of glory, the first understanding of glory that we have both in this passage and in the Gospel of John is the eternal glory of God in which the second person of the divine trinity, in which the Son of God shared fully from eternity past. Did you notice in verse 5 that Jesus prayed that he would be restored to the glory that he had in God's presence at the very beginning? And of course, that takes us to the beginning of John chapter 1, 
where John says, in the beginning was the Word, referring to the Son of God, the, the divine second person of the Trinity. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. The Son of God is of the exact same substance, the divine substance of the Father. And so he is co-equal with the Father and co-eternal with the Father and shares fully in the glory of God from eternity past. That powerful presence, that perfect character, that is the glory of Jesus from eternity past. In verse 14, John refers to the glory of the one and only Son, the unique Son of God. Jesus, from eternity past, shared in that powerful glory of God. It is most evident if we consider Isaiah chapter 6. And of course, if you've been in Cary Alliance Church for any length of time, you know that this is probably the passage that we read most here. The prophet writes, Isaiah 6, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. And the prophet's response, Woe is me, he said. He cried, for I'm undone, for I'm ruined. He's had a vision of the powerful presence of the glory of God. And even that vision of God's glory ruins him, undoes him in the presence of God. And here's the kicker. That's Jesus' glory that Isaiah sees. John points that out to us in chapter 12. In John chapter 12, there had been a voice, a manifestation of God's glory. In this chapter, John considers the unbelief of the people and in referring to the unbelief of the people, to their blinded eyes and closed ears and hardened hearts, he goes back to Isaiah chapter 6 to talk about unbelief. And he says that in Isaiah 6, Isaiah spoke because he saw Jesus' glory. John chapter 12. Verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. So the first dynamic of glory that we see in the Gospel of John is Jesus fully sharing in the glory of God from eternity past. But then there's a movement. The glory is veiled in flesh. And the apostles are given glimpses as if the veil is opened a little bit throughout the gospel so that they can see and understand Jesus' glory. 
John chapter 1, verse 14, the Word, the eternal glorious Word became flesh and dwelt for a while, tabernacled for a while. You know the Old Testament tabernacle where God's glory descended, but it was hidden behind a veil? Do you remember Moses and God's glory descending upon Moses, but it was hidden behind a veil? The Word of God became flesh, a veil over the glory of the Word of God as He dwelt among us. But throughout the gospel, glimpses of His glory are given to the apostles and are given to us. The first one is in John chapter 2, where Jesus performs His first miracle, turning water into wine demonstrating the very power of the Creator to change the actual substance of something into something else. And John says, in this, the first of Jesus' miracles, He revealed His glory, and His disciples believed in Him. These glimpses of God's glory continue throughout. Remember? In John chapter 9, the healing of the blind man. Why was this man born blind? He was born blind so that God's glory might be revealed in him. In chapter 11, when the news comes that Lazarus is sick and Jesus knows that Lazarus is going to die, he says this sickness will not end in death, but rather in a manifestation of the glory of God through Jesus Christ. And so Lazarus is raised from the dead, and Jesus' glory is, is revealed. The disciples are given a glimpse of it. So the eternal glory, then veiled in flesh, but the disciples given glimpses of it, is brought to culmination is manifested most visibly or powerfully on the cross. That is the third movement, glory, that is culminated on the cross, where Jesus Himself is glorified and where He gives glory to the Father. This is the thing that He prays about. Glorif the time has come. Glorify Your Son that Your Son may glorify You. There's a clear line between the ministry of Christ leading up to the events of the cross and then the event of what we refer to as the Passion Week, of the trials and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that line is in John chapter 12. Up to that point, the thing that we read is Jesus' time had not yet come. He says that to his mother. We read that in, uh, in chapter 7 as well. Up to that time, we read Jesus had not yet been glorified. Again, in John 7, John comments that the Holy Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. And then again, uh, in John chapter 8, when the crowd is angry and they want to stone Jesus, they want to put Him to death, He passes through their presence and no one can lay a hand on Him because He had not yet been glorified. It was not the right moment. The events of John are leading up to the right moment. But in John 12, Jesus enters into Jerusalem. It's the story of the triumphal entry. And Jesus begins to contemplate the inevitable events of the cross. In John chapter 12, 
when Jesus goes into Jerusalem, the die is cast. There's no turning back. The events have begun to precipitate and will be fulfilled without fail. And so, Jesus says in John 12, now the time has come. Now will the Son of Man be glorified. That's John 12, 23. This is the moment that everything and everyone has been waiting for. Glory will be culminated through the events of the cross. And just to make sure that we understand what Jesus is talking about, when he says now is the time that the Son of Man will be glorified, he immediately goes on to talk about a kernel of wheat falling to the ground and dying in order to bear much fruit. And then he goes on from there to talk about the Son of Man being lifted up and in a reference absolutely to the cross. And when the Son of Man is lifted up, He will draw all men to Himself. Jesus says that the time has come for Him to be glorified and then refers immediately to the cross. Men view the cross as an instrument of shame. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. It's the place of sin and suffering and rejection and punishment and condemnation. But that instrument of shame for man is an instrument of glory for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the Son of Man is glorified as He goes to the cross. And so in John 17, Jesus prays, Father, glorify your Son. And we know He's talking about the cross because He also says, verse 4, I have brought you glory by finishing the work you gave me to do. The cross is the place where Jesus is glorified, but it is also the place where He ultimately gives God the glory by finishing His work. We can't go into everything that is meant by this concept of finishing the work. You might remember in chapter 14 where Jesus said that we would do the very works that He has been doing. We talked about what is Jesus' work, and we, we traced through the Gospel of John the various times that He referred to His work. What we can do now is go back to the essential moment. That is John chapter 4 in which Jesus has spoken with the, the Samaritan woman who has been caught in shameful sin. And He gives her the waters of life. And she is so powerfully transformed that she goes off to her village and he, she says to the whole village, come on and see Him. And as this crowd with their white robes comes across the field and Jesus points them out to His disciples, He points out the harvest of souls, He says, my food is to do the work of the One who sent me, to finish the work of the One who sent me. Jesus' work was to 
point people to the Father. Everything that he did and said was directing people to the Father so that they would receive life from the Father. And here, Jesus says, I have finished the work. He's referring, of course, to the entire event of the cross. For Jesus, at this moment, the cross is not only inevitable, but even in his mind has already been accomplished. In chapter 19, we read the famous phrase, it is finished. That is the moment at Jesus' death on the cross in which redemption is completely accomplished, in which salvation is made available to everyone who will believe. When Jesus cries, it is finished. The work of making a way for people to go to the Father has been completely accomplished. And Jesus says that that brings God's glory. The ultimate expression of the glory of God is seen on the cross of Jesus Christ. Why? Because there, the perfections of His character are completely on display. The love, the justice, the holiness, the wisdom, the wrath, and the life, the mercy and compassion of God the Father perfectly displayed for everyone who gazes on that cross. One thing that we need to understand here is that the saving of people, the salvation that was purchased on that cross, is not an end in itself, but is a means of something else. It is a means of God getting glory. And we have to align our hearts with that dynamic that is at play here. God gets the glory through the cross as a precious people is purchased for Him for all of eternity. Jesus talks about it right here in this prayer, that He is giving eternal life to everyone whom the Father has given Him. And then He goes on to describe eternal life. What is eternal life? It's knowing God. It's being in a relationship with God in which we are perfectly known and in which we grow in our knowledge of Him. All of this is pointed to God's glory. And that's important because often we view ourselves as the end process of salvation, don't we? I know that I do. In fact, when I looked at these passages, I thought, oh, this is going to be great. We're going to pick verse 3 out of the middle of this. This is eternal life, that you, that they, sorry, that they may know the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And we're going to talk about eternal life and how we can have eternal life. But you know what? Verse 3 is only a sub-point about how Jesus gives glory to the Father, how Jesus gets glory, and how Jesus gives glory to the Father. We are a sub-point in an eternal process of God getting glory, and that's okay. 
It's okay for us to recognize that. Not only is it okay, but it's absolutely essential. When we preach a gospel that is focused on the benefits that we can receive in our relationship with God, then we produce a people who are mainly interested in something to get for themselves. But when we preach a gospel in which ultimately God is getting all the glory, then we are producing and discipling and we ourselves are growing in the understanding that every aspect of our being is to exist for the glory of God just as it was with Jesus. His desire was to bring God glory, and we must align ourselves with that desire because in the end, God is the only one who matters. Some of you were here last week when we talked about the aseity of God, the fact that He exists perfectly in and of Himself. He Himself is the source of life. He does not need us. He did not have to save us. Well, it plays right in here. The reason that He did save us is for His glory. And He continues to exist in all of his perfections. And our choice is either align ourselves with him in which all of our focus is on his glory or be out of alignment from him in which our focus is ourselves, our desires, our own glory, and in which ultimately we will not be able to stand in the presence of the perfectly holy and glorious God. So we've seen here Jesus sharing in the glory of the Father from eternity past, that glory being veiled in flesh, but glimpses of it given to the disciples. Then on the cross, Jesus being glorified and giving glory to the Father. And then the final dynamic of glory is in which Jesus is exalted back into God's presence and is renewed in the perfections of all of God's glory. That's what he prays about in chapter 5. He prays that he will be restored to that position of glory that he had from eternity past. And we know that that is accomplished, both in his resurrection when he is declared with power to be the Son of God, when the authority, he referred to authority in verse 2, when the authority that he was given is manifested in the defeat of all of his enemies, of Satan, of death, of sin, all of it defeated. His authority established. He demonstrated to be the Son of God with power. And then his ascension, when he returns to the presence of God. If you have your Bibles open, look at those words there in verse 5 where Jesus says, it asks that he be restored to the glory that he had in God's presence from eternity past. I've often thought of that as a kind of cold and distant term. Picture the throne room of God and we, we open the doors and walk in and we're in the presence of God, but you know, he's kind of at the other side of the room and we're standing there in terror in the presence of God's glory. But the word here refers to being by one side. 
It's a word of intimacy. In John chapter 1, Jesus, the one and only Son, is at the Father's side. And the prayer in John 17 is that He will be restored to the Father's side where He shares in the fullness of God's glory. Listen to how John sees it. This is in the book of Revelation chapter 1, where John sees someone like a son of man dressed in a robe. Hear the parallels, by the way, with Isaiah 6, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a blazing fire, his feet like bronze glowing in a furnace, his voice like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. It's a vision of glory. And the apostle's response, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And look, now I am alive forever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. That is the glory of the presence and the perfect character of God seen again fully unveiled in Jesus Christ. What I hope we see here is that it is all about glory. And as Jesus approaches the cross, He doesn't see shame. He doesn't see suffering. He doesn't see sorrow. He sees glory. And He consecrates Himself for the glory of God. So how can we pray like Jesus? If the Lord's Prayer is His instruction for the disciples on how to pray, this is His example for all of us on how to pray. And once again, actually, it's really interesting to see the parallels. Father, hallowed be Your name. God, receive the glory. Your will be done. And Jesus dedicating himself to fulfilling the will of the Father. His prayer for daily provision, and here as he prays for sanctification, as he prays for unity, as he prays for love. His prayer that they would be, that we, sorry, his instruction that we pray to be delivered from the evil one, and here his prayer that the disciples would be protected from the schemes of the evil one. Both of these prayers are about God's glory. Jesus tells us how to pray, but here He does give us an example of how to pray. And again, it's all about God's glory. First of all, there's a posture of prayer in these verses. In verse 1, Jesus lifted up His eyes to heaven. That is a position of pleading it's a position of, of asking, and it's a position of receiving. And we need to recognize that the positions of our bodies in prayer actually are a reflection of the attitude of our heart and mind and our soul as we come to the Father in prayer. 
When we get down on our knees in prayer, we are humbling ourselves before Him. If we lift up our hands in prayer, we are exalting Him. Jesus looks to heaven in prayer. Excuse me. Jesus looks to heaven in prayer, submitting Himself to the Father. He's giving us an example. I often pray reclined on my couch in the morning. And as I thought about this, I thought, you know what? That's, that's maybe not a great position of prayer. I'm not slamming it. In fact, there's sometimes that we pray while laying in our bed. There's a dear lady in our church who every time she's woken up in the middle of the night, she thinks, okay, Lord, you woke me up. What am I supposed to pray about? And she lays there and prays until she goes back to sleep. That's a great position for prayer. But for the most part, we can reflect the attitude of our Savior in the position of our body as we are ready to receive from God whatever it is that, we has, that He has to say as we pray. If our focus in prayer is the glory of God, then let's focus our bodies on God in prayer. That's really just a little aside. Another way that we pray like Jesus is the prayer relationship. We already referred to the fact that Jesus prays 21 times through the Gospels. 20 of those times he refers to God as his Father. We know from Romans chapter 8 that that word Father is the equivalent of the Aramaic Abba, Daddy. It is expressing the intimacy of a relationship that we share with a loving Heavenly Father. And we have the opportunity in prayer to come to a God who loves us and is eager to receive us. I said 20 out of 21 times. Isn't it remarkable that the one time that Jesus does not refer to God as Father is when He's on the cross? And there, having taken upon himself the full weight of the sin of all of mankind, and there absorbing the full wrath of God against human sin, the wrath that we deserve, he taking it in our place. There where the Father turns his face away because of the sin that lays upon the Son. Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That relationship was ruptured for you and for me so that by believing in him, we may receive life in his name. So that by believing in him, we may enter into a relationship with the loving Heavenly Father who is eager to receive us in prayer. A prayer posture, a prayer relationship, but of course the essence here is the focus of our prayer. And if we are aligning ourselves with this glory dynamic, recognizing it's not about us, it's not about what we want, it's not about what we think we might deserve, it's not about what we hope for, not about what we dream about, not about what will bring us pleasure. It's about God's glory. And in prayer, we are focusing ourselves on what will bring God the most glory 
in our lives, saying, Father, glorify yourself in me, in my circumstances, in the place where I find myself right now. There are three ways that people bring God glory in the Gospel of John. First one is right here in this passage. God gets glory when people enter into a loving relationship with Him, when we become His, when people are saved. If you have not yet aligned yourself with God in the sense of receiving the forgiveness that is available to you through Jesus Christ, now is the moment to give God glory by saying yes. I don't deserve any of it, but I receive the abundance of your grace available in Jesus Christ. That brings God glory. Another way that people give glory to God in the Gospel of John is by bearing fruit. Jesus said in John chapter 15 that God gets glory when we bear fruit for him. And that fruit is referring not only to the fruit of, of a character that is transformed, but actually primarily to the fruit of bringing other people into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so part of our praying, when we say, God, I want my life to bring you glory, is praying that he will use us to lead other people to him. Because God's glory is magnified God's glory is made manifest as others dedicate their lives to Him and align themselves with Him in the kingdom. So praying about bearing fruit. And then this is a rough one. In John 21, Peter is being restored into a relationship with Jesus Christ. You remember, Peter had denied Jesus three times, with curses even the last time. I have nothing to do with him. He did it because he was afraid. In John 21, Jesus restores Peter to himself. Three times he asks him, Peter, do you love me? And Peter affirms his love, and Jesus commissions him to care for the church, to care for the sheep. But then Jesus indicates that a time is coming when Peter is going to be led away into a place where he doesn't want to go. And John comments that in this, Jesus was referring to how Peter would give God glory by dying for him. So an opportunity that we have to give God glory is by dying for him. That's one thing to think. Is the day coming when I'm going to be willing to die for my faith? And we should pray and prepare ourselves if that day is to come. But do you remember how Jesus talked about dying daily? If anyone will come after me, they must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. You remember Paul saying, I die daily? The greatest way that we can give God glory is through a Christ-like character day in and day out and a cruciform life, 
a life that takes the shape and follows in the footsteps of the cross of our Savior. We can take up Christ's prayer, not, of course, in an atoning death. He did that once and for all. We can take up Christ's prayer in a cross-bearing life. And so the focus of our prayer is that we will give God glory by magnifying and manifesting the perfections of his character in our daily life. A third way we can pray like Jesus is repeated prayer of consecration. In John 12, Jesus prayed, Father, glorify your name. In John 17, Jesus prays, Father, glorify your name through me. In 18, he then, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he once again commits himself to following through on the Father's will, on the course that was laid out before him. One commentator said, yesterday's consecrations will not serve for today's crises. If our Savior needed to repeat his commitment and his consecration and prayer, then so do we. And the end is glorification. And here we're referring to the fact that we will one day be glorified, lifted up into the presence of God to share in eternal pleasures at His right hand, perfectly reflecting the character of Jesus Christ, and able, without shame, without woe, without falling, able to stand in His presence and gaze on His glory. That's what awaits us. Let's live for it now, and let's pray. Father, you said that it is by your word that you engender faith. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of God. And here in this prayer, Jesus says that it is by your word that you sanctify. There is no way that, that my words could be adequate this morning to express the beauties, and the majesty of your glory. Lord, would you please take your word and by the working of your spirit, drive it deep into our hearts and work transformation. We would live for your glory, but we are so weak and so often we fail. Thank you that you've given your spirit. That we can walk in your spirit and so follow in the footsteps of our loving and glorious Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.